What a joy to sing that together. James chapter number three. James chapter number three. I'd like to bring the slides up there on the screen behind me. Pardon me for just a moment. Well, Drew and I work together here to get this connected. And then hopefully I can get this up. It will help us, I believe, as we work our way through this passage. Last week, we were in James 3, and we looked at the characteristics, the characteristics of man's wisdom. And we spent some time dividing up the man's wisdom, the the terms, and we're looking at worldly wisdom, we're looking at human wisdom, and we are looking at earthly wisdom. And we're drawing some of this, uh, not necessarily each specific term, but when we look at verse 15 of James 3, we, say, we see this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. So as we look at wisdom and we contrast man's wisdom from God's wisdom, we're kind of taking some different perspectives, kind of taking a prism and turning that prism and shining some light and some truth and revealing some different aspects of man's wisdom, though in a sense they're all one category. We're dividing them up into earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, and human wisdom. And we see some of the characteristics of that listed here in James 3 in verse number 15, where last week we looked at this earthly wisdom, this sensual wisdom, this devilish wisdom. Earthly meaning from the word, or meaning meaning from the earth, from the root word plant. This word sensual having to do with the human psyche or what we use to form our words psychology or psychosis has to do with the natural as opposed to the supernatural. And then James uses a strong word here in verse 15. He uses the word devilish. Speaking to the fact that ultimately the source of man's wisdom goes all the way back to the devil, to Satan himself. He uses the world, he uses the flesh, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But as we bring this up to the the screen here, let me put in my secret code. I guess it's not so secret anymore. But this should help us, Lord willing. Let me back this up here and make sure I am connected. And this will hopefully help us as we work our way through, because there are so many terms and definitions. And so appreciate your patience while we connect here. And our code is... 6043. And that will allow us to turn to this particular slide here. And we'll work our way back through for review verses 13 and 14. Who is wise, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? The question is asked. Who is wise? Who is truly wise? Who is truly understanding? Wise having to do with knowledge and philosophy. The original language would use this word wisdom or wise. 
speaking of simply knowledge, philosophy, but the Jewish language added to its meaning, and by the inspiration of God, James infuses spiritual meaning into this word wise, and it has to do with applying the skillful or practical use of knowledge for the means of practical living. So we're seeing here in this verse that the truly wise and understanding person has a spiritual skill, a spiritual expertise. This endued with knowledge has to do with understanding, specifically a specialist or professional who could skillfully apply his expertise to practical situations. Again, for a quick review, last week we talked about the fact that there are specialists in medicine, there are experts in all sorts of different fields, and we're thankful for the expertise, thankful for the skills that God blesses us with, that God gives to us, but where is the skill, where is the expertise in godly living, in holiness, in living out the principles of God's word. So often it is lacking, isn't it? We can be experts, we can be skilled in so many other areas, and yet lacking in moral skill, in spiritual skill, in practical daily Christian living. And that's what James is really trying to drive home here. And the way in which we practice this skill the way in which we live out this expertise of spiritual, moral, godly, holy living is to do so with meekness, with humility, without arrogance or self-promotion. It's a real battle in our culture, which is so much about self, that even when we are trying to do right and do well and serve the Lord, we can be afflicted with pride. We are... In a celebrity culture, we're in an I culture, in a me first culture. I see it even in the ministry, how some men become, as I sometimes joke, they become the fourth person of the Trinity. They're more about getting a national reputation. They're more about lording over their people. They're more about getting likes and follows, even in ministry than they are about serving their Lord who has called them in shepherding as a preacher, as a pastor is called to do. Bitter jealousy or bitter envying, a word that or a phrase that speaks of undrinkable water. We are warned that as we live out the Christian life, as we are doers of the word, that we not have this bitter envying, this bitter jealousy and strife in our hearts. We see this word strife referring to selfish ambition, self-seeking words and actions that antagonize and cause division. Sadly, we have seen churches split over selfish ambition in self-seeking words, haven't we? Sadly, one of the primary ways in which new churches are planted is called the church split. How sad when it gets into the church, this kind of bitter envying and jealousy. And it's like undrinkable, polluted water that gets into 
the water of the church, not the water at the sink that we wash our hands with or the drinking water that we drink from, but the water of the bitter water of bitter envy and jealousy that gets into the spirit of the church into hearts and lives and causes divisions in strife. This word strife is, again, the Greek word that was used of a politician. And don't we get sick and tired of politics? And sadly, it gets into the church. And James is warning. He's using a word that in their day, they understood very clearly meant a politician who was forcing his agenda at almost any cost. If that meant mistreating someone, dominating people, mudslinging, inflammatory language, so be it. Because he was going to get his way. And James is warning us. He's saying this should not be the way we live out the Christian life. Doers of the word, true doers of the word, do not live this way. They live out with spiritual skill and wisdom and understanding, endued with knowledge, in humility, in humility, without arrogance and with self-promotion. They live out a holy, moral, godly life of integrity with spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. So we looked at these terms. I won't go back and review all of them. But as James has been carefully laying out these principles, these truths, he has dealt with trials and temptations. And he is saying that a biblically wise person, a truly wise person, learns to count it all joy when they fall into diverse temptations. Because they ask wisdom from the Lord. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. A true doer of the word learns to count, to consider even trials and temptations, consider them with joy, and asks, asks of God for wisdom, so as not to be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He says to be a doer of the word, we, we bridle our tongue, we serve without expecting anything in return, and we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. He reminded us in James chapter number 2 of a doer of the word not being discriminatory and prejudiced, not being a person of partiality. He dealt with the tongue in James chapter number 3, didn't he? A doer of the word learns to control his tongue. That can be like a fire, that can be like poison, that can be like a wild beast. And then he says, the one who is truly a doer of the word has this spiritual skill, has this expertise to live out the Christian life with meekness, with humility, not with selfish ambition and arrogance. And that is literally to swim upstream in our culture, isn't it? It's to go against the grain of our culture. We talked about this a little bit on Monday night in our Bible study on campus about how as we live the Christian life, as we serve God faithfully and love Him and obey His word, we are going to be like people walking against the crowd. Have you ever gone to a, a big event and 
the crowd lets out and you have to go against the crowd. And there's hundreds of people coming one direction and you're trying to weave your way through. Maybe you parked your car on some other spot that was against the crowd from some big sporting event or public event. And you find yourself trying to weave your way through. And we find ourselves with God's wisdom, with biblical wisdom, going against the crowd in our culture today, in our world today. And having to navigate with skill, with wisdom from the Lord. As we go against the crowd, against the culture that is full of man's wisdom, worldly wisdom, human wisdom. So we've looked at those characteristics, but then today I want us to come back again to James chapter 3. And let's go down to verse 17. And we see the contrast between man's wisdom and biblical wisdom. What are some characteristics of biblical wisdom found in James 3 and verse 17? Well, first of all, we see that the wisdom that is from above, whose source is God... This wisdom is first pure, free from defilement. There's integrity of life. There's moral sincerity. There's a holiness of life. It is peaceable, peace-loving, peace-promoting, peace in keeping with righteousness. This is not peace at the expense of truth. Because sometimes that's what is promoted, right? Oh, well, let's just all go along to get along, right? Let's just get rid of all of our doctrines so that we can just find the least common denominator and then we can all just coexist. That's not what he's referring to here. He's saying this peace is not at the expense of truth, but it is peace according to the truth. It is in holiness, pure. This wisdom is first pure. It's according to the truth, according to the holy truth of God's word. It involves the integrity of our life, the moral character of our life, our Christ-likeness. This is not the absence of conviction. But again, it is conviction with meekness. It is strength. It is power of conviction. Strength that comes from the Lord. Moral integrity that comes from being a, a beer of the word. Knowing the word, being the word, and now living it out with integrity, with moral character. So there is conviction of life, but it is done with a tenderness with a meekness, with a humility. I am not very familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you have read the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia series. But my understanding from a little bit, it's been years since I, I read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, I honestly have not sat through any of the movies, though I think our children have sat through I've watched a couple of them multiple times. I don't think I've ever made it through an entire one. But my understanding in the analogy that C.S. Lewis gives, Aslan is a lion, correct? He's a lion. And the question is asked, is Aslan, the lion, something to be afraid of, someone to be afraid of? 
And I can't remember who the character is that answers. I think it might have been Lucy who says, yes, of course, he's a lion. But he's good. He's good. We have to have a strength of life, a character that's biblical, that's founded in biblical conviction, that's produced by a Christ-likeness. And those convictions are biblical but they're held with humility. They're held with tenderness. I think it was said of Abraham Lincoln that he was a man of steel and a man of velvet. He had a steel hand, but it was wrapped in a velvet glove. And that's the way we have to be as believers. We're to have a biblical wisdom that is pure and, yes, is peaceable and gentle. Sweet and reasonable. Now, some of us are a little bit more laid back in our personality. Some are more A-type or go-get-em, more maybe aggressive in their personality. Sometimes it's affected by our upbringing and our parents and various things and difficulties or lack thereof in life. The point is that Christ-likeness, wisdom from above, godly wisdom produces a gentleness of life, a sweetness, a reasonableness to life. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. And then a phrase that is a little bit harder for us to understand. We don't use this phrase quite this way. Easy to be entreated. Literally, it means we'll submit to all kinds of mistreatment and difficulty with an attitude of kind, courteous, Patient humility without any thought of hatred or revenge. This is tough, isn't it? <laughs> this, this passage really hits home. It's very convicting. Because that's not the way we want to react. That's not the way our flesh wants to respond. Willing to submit to mistreatment? You mean I don't have the right to just get on my phone, get on my computer, and just blast the smithereenies out of whoever disagrees with me? I don't have the right to just massacre them with my inflammatory language and tongue and just to really dig it deep and let them know who I am and how I deserve to be treated. Let them really know who's in charge. Don't you know who I am? That's the spirit of our age, isn't it? Sadly, I've even been around men in the ministry who have that kind of attitude in the pulpit. And I, I, I don't want to ever come across, sometimes, and this is one of the things that, can I just share a little bit of my burden? If, if you only come on Sunday morning, sometimes I, I know I can appear to be very... Um, Strong in, in, in the message. And I really don't want to be only seen as the reprover. But if you come on a Sunday night, I, I feel like Psalm 119 often pours salve in. And on Wednesday nights, we often have a, a time of Bible study. And I'm not trying to uh, lay guilt trips on people. I'm just saying that sometimes when people don't come to various services, they don't see the width and the depth and the breadth of our ministry. And this isn't about me, but it's just about the word of God. As we come across passages like in James 3, it gets very convicting. James doesn't hold anything back. 
But then we also need the salve of God's word, the balm of Gilead. And there are passages like where we're at in Psalm 119 or like on Wednesday nights and in various passages as we've been looking now at some minor prophets. It's important for us as believers to be developing within our lives through Bible conviction, biblical character, moral integrity founded in God's word, that we have this attitude of kindness and courteousness and patient humility. That we're not always about vengeance and revenge. Literally, literally, this term is used even to speak of those who are willing to yield to military or legal standards. So a person will go into the military and they will submit to military standards for the purpose of being prepared for military conflicts. And we expect them to have a submission of their life to be able to be prepared. So when the enemy comes, when the enemy attacks, when there's war and there's conflict, they can deal with the hardships of war and still be successful and be victorious and accomplish the mission. But how many times do we as believers, we fight against God? We reinterpret scripture and make excuses and play the blame game. And we say, well, I'm not going to submit to God's word because that means I have to submit to that person. I have to treat that person right. And doesn't God know and understand? I don't like that person. I don't want to have to be nice to them. They don't deserve to be nice to. I shouldn't have to do nice things to people I don't like. That's the attitude. That's what we're told, right? And if we can, in, according to our culture, if we can designate certain groups of people as the bad guys, then whoever is in any way, shape, or form associated with the bad guys can be sent out into orbit, and they don't have to be treated. The biblical principles don't apply. There has to be a compassion of life while we still have strength of conviction. There has to be a willingness to yield, even our own ways and our own rights, Sometimes, And that's where he goes next. As he continues in this verse, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Easy to be entreated, this willingness to submit to all kinds of mistreatment, willing to yield like in a military or in a legal obligation to the law or to military standards, For a believer, a willingness to yield to God's moral standards. Where once we were a broken or a a wild horse, we are now broken and trainable. That then produces mercy and good fruits, a concern for those who are suffering. An empathy and a sympathy, a compassion. A willingness to forgive quickly and to not hold grudges or be bitter. Again, James is, is, is not holding back. He says the doer of the word doesn't just talk the talk, but lives out this life of biblical wisdom. This Bible knowledge lived out in practical skill and expertise of Christian living, of godly living, of righteous living. And it is full of mercy and good fruits. 
There's an empathy and a sympathy. There's a willingness to have concern and to identify with those who are suffering, not be full of grudges and bitterness, but having a forgiving spirit. And to do so without partiality, the only time this particular word, phrase is used. It's translated without partiality here in verse 17, and it means a consistent person, unwavering. Again, having conviction, having consistency of life, having commitment to biblical convictions and principles, and doesn't compromise for money, for likability, for acceptance, for worldly approval. This is the true doer of the word that James is bringing us continually back to, whose life is lived out in such a way that there is a commitment to the truth of the word of God, to the principles, the promises, and the commands of God's word, that there is an unwillingness to compromise the truth of God's word for money, for a promotion, for top 10 status, to have one's name or particular label on the top 10 of the charts, being willing when asked a very clear question about truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil, kindly, gently, but with firmness and strength that comes from the Lord, speak the truth and call evil what it is. Call good what it is. Speak up for moral integrity according to God's word. Is it not becoming harder and harder? As we are now having to make statements regarding gender and sexuality, where even now we have people who claim, can I, can, I, can I just, again, go in a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but when the state of Ohio can pass in high percentages laws that legalize the recreational use of marijuana, which is bad enough, like we don't have enough trouble with all the other drugs in our society, now people can legally, with recreational use, fry their brains and become potheads and deadheads and all the other vices that come with it. But what was the first thing on the proposal? To, to, to constitutionalize the right to abortion. Murder. Thank you, whoever said that. To put into the Constitution the murder of unborn babies... And how many of those people signed off on the murder of unborn babies and then walked into an evangelical or religious church of some kind the very next Sunday? Or walked out of the doors of their church on Sunday, went to the polls on Tuesday and said, well, anybody has their right to choose who am I to say and then vote for the murder of innocent lives and then walk right back into the doors of a church the next Sunday. That bothers me. That for likes, follows, because I don't want people to think something about me, that I'm weird, 
that I'm different, that I'm out of touch. I heard someone say the other day, I thought it was, a, it was well said, I think it might have been Dean Clark who said about, in, in his lesson about being on the right side of history. I'd rather be on the right side of eternity. And it's all about staying up with the, the trends of the day. No, this idea of biblical wisdom that James refers to when he says without partiality, without hypocrisy, he is referring to a person who is consistent and unwavering in their commitment to biblical convictions, to biblical principles, and doesn't compromise those for money, likability, acceptance, or worldly approval. I know we, we tend to, and I've done it many a times, I've just read through this passage, but as I've studied and prepared for this message, it has once again brought these truths home to where the rubber meets the road. Am I this kind of a doer of the word? This is what God expects of us. This is true biblical wisdom. This is true skill and expertise of moral, righteous, godly living. We don't get to make excuses. We don't get to say, well, it's just the way I am. You don't know who I uh, was, was married to or who I was raised by or on and on the excuses. We, 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 we want to play the blame game and we want to play the, 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 the victim. It's not my fault. We live in a day and age of abdicating personal responsibility. And James says, we don't get off... <laughs> We don't get to make excuses. This is the way a true, wise, truly wise, biblically wise person lives. This is the wisdom that is from above. And then he says in verse 18, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So again, it goes back to that term peaceable, peace-loving, peace-promoting, Peacemakers, as Matthew 5 reminds us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. That has to do with a forgiving spirit. That has to do with pointing people to the truth, being willing to forgive and being willing to say, please forgive me. And being willing to, with the grace of God, not with compromise, but with the grace of God, allowing there to be the covering of sin in the right way, not approving sin, not identifying with sin, not excusing sin, but in biblical love, being able to cover a multitude of sins in the sense of a forgiving spirit. Do we not have to do that in our marriages? Can you imagine if we went back to our first month of our marriage and we were still bringing up the things that we were trying to fix and adjust, and we've been married 20, 30, 40 years. Kelly and I have been married 23 years, and she's still probably trying to adjust to, to, to me and some new adjustments that come along. How do we ever have a marriage that honors God that lasts if we don't practice biblical wisdom in these areas with one another, submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God? Husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord. How do we even have a church family that covenants together and has unity and can go forward with the gospel 
If we don't practice these truths, if we don't live out this biblical wisdom, if these are not characteristics of our life. So we continue in understanding wisdom as I referred to Proverbs 3 this morning in our scripture reading. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We reverence God. We submit to God, to his word. We allow God to work in our hearts so that we do what pleases him and not do what displeases him. And we live out these biblical characteristics of true wisdom. So then we come back to, excuse me, I said Proverbs, James chapter 3 and verse 14. And we'll also have to reference in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2 some of the consequences of man's wisdom. Some of the consequences. What's the result? We've looked at some of these as we looked at the characteristics. So just quickly here, what happens when there is man's wisdom that ignores, minimizes, or misplaces God and his word and his principles, his promises, his commands? There's envy, there's jealousy, there's this desire for power and control, there's selfish ambition which results in strife, a self-seeking that results in antagonism and division, results in confusion and every evil work. That's the result of man's wisdom. Do we not see that lived out, played out all around the world and in our culture and various countries and societies and cultures throughout history and even in the contemporary age in which we live, do we not see Satan using confusion in every evil work through strife and envy? Confusion has to do with disorientation and instability that produces discord, disruption, and division. Satan's a master at this, isn't he? To the point now that confusion even comes down to basic biological realities. And Satan would love for us to be ambiguous about clear Bible truths. What God calls sin, when God gave us his word, he did not mumble. And he did not say, well, when the 21st century arrives and man gets more technology and becomes wiser in his abilities to produce things and technology and all of the other forms of higher learning and education, then I'll change what the Bible says and it'll be more relevant in the 21st century. No! God's word is the same. As Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever as the living word of God, God's word is true eternally. We'll talk about that again some more tonight in Psalm 119. But Satan loves to use disorientation and instability. Can I just go ahead and say as well that the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world with his principalities and his powers and his spiritual wickedness in high places, as Political leaders, as government leaders, give themselves over to lies. As they reject the word of God, they allow themselves to be used for these wicked and evil purposes. 
So then they love to spread confusion and doubts and ambiguity about clear moral truths, about right and wrong, about good and evil. So that now we have protesters who will not speak of the atrocity and murderous savagery of a terrorist organization in legacy media newspapers and media outlets that won't even call a murderous terrorist organization a terrorist organization. But then we get upset about the legacy media and then we look at our own life and how ambiguous do we become about our own sin? How ambiguous do I become about my own sin? How often do I say, well, it really isn't that big of a deal? How often do I say, well, it really isn't going to affect me? I can handle that. How often do I make excuses? I was listening to a preacher the other day, and I thought it was very good what he said about how we can rationalize our sin. We can spiritualize our sin, and then we normalize our sin. I thought, wow, how deceptive our hearts are. How deceptive is my heart that I will normalize what God clearly says is abnormal, is sinful, is wrong. How often do we spiritualize, even try to say that God would bless? I've heard someone say, well, God did this. God allowed, well, they didn't say allowed. They said God did this. God put this person in my life. And I married them, even though they knew specific things that were clearly taught in God's word that they should not marry that person. And they said, but God, God put that person in my life. God led me. God told me to marry. Really? I don't think that was the spirit of God, knowing what we knew about that individual and their relationship with God and some of their characteristics. Don't think God was in it, but we can put God into, we can make Excuses for our sin. And practice earthly, human, sensual, devilish wisdom. Every evil work. 1 Corinthians 1 deals with this even more. I, I, I wish we had time to, to go to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. We don't have time to turn there, but in these two passages, we see that worldly wisdom is described as after the flesh is described as man's pride in the terms of mighty, noble, glory, referring to man and his pride, lifting himself up, thinking himself above God and above God's word and above God's truths. In 1 Corinthians 2, human wisdom is described in terms of excellency of speech and enticing words of man's wisdom and wisdom of men, using knowledge and learning to manipulate and control those under their teaching for personal gain, prominence, domination, dominion. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1 warns us that knowledge puffeth up. Human wisdom has a way of lifting man up in pride. And do we not see that over and over again? 
And if not, if we're not careful, it will afflict us. And we'll get to trying to live our lives in human wisdom instead of in biblical wisdom. Instead of with the skill and the expertise of biblical wisdom that has true knowledge and understanding and endued with knowledge among you and showing out of a good conversation works with meekness of wisdom that we should be living according to. So we look finally in verses 17 and 18, as we've touched on these already, we'll come back to these verses again and we'll just highlight a couple more things from these two verses when we see the capital of biblical wisdom. We've seen human wisdom, the characteristics of human wisdom, the characteristics of biblical wisdom, the consequences of human wisdom, all the strife and confusion and every evil work, and now we're going to look at the capital, the blessings, the fruits of righteousness, the capital of biblical wisdom. He says a good conversation, a good lifestyle, a holy life, a manner of life that produces good works, fruit of the Spirit, the virtues of 2 Peter 1. The fruit of righteousness, the good works that come from the application of biblical wisdom. In what seeds does biblical wisdom sow? Seeds of peace. Sown in peace of them that make peace. What kind of peace? A peace that is pure. A peace that is holy. A peace that is according to biblical truth. That is according to the truth. A ceasefire that went on for several days this past week for the release of hostages and all of that. Did the ceasefire, it ceased for a temporary period of time some conflict. Of course, it was broken by Hamas, who then went and murdered three people in Jerusalem, right? Was that not a violation of the ceasefire? So, a ceasefire is not true peace, is there? Satan masquerades a form of peace that really isn't peace. But biblical wisdom, the blessing of biblical wisdom, of the living out with skill and expertise... Bible truths, being a true doer of the word in these areas that we have just identified as characteristics of biblical wisdom that we've drawn from 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2 as well, results in a good conversation, a life of righteousness, a fruit of righteousness, a manner of life that is godly, that shows forth good works and builds a righteousness of life that's not picking fights, bullying people, or living in a constant crisis of relationship and circumstances. I get burdened sometimes for people who, what I refer to, they live in crisis Christianity. It just seems like they go from one crisis to another. And I'm not saying that it's, it, it, I'm not talking about the, the, the sufferings, the trials that come into our lives. I'm talking about Crises that come because of personal sinful choices. That it just seems to compound. And it's like it, it, it gets swept underneath the rug. You ever done this with a, a room in your house? Asked a child to clean their bedroom. You walk in and wow. Floor, you can see the carpet. The bed's main. There's no clothes sticking out of the drawers. 
The top is all nice. All the dust has been taken and cleaned off. And then you open up the closet and look out, right? Here it comes. We do that with our Christian life, don't we? We have a closet, we have a cabinet, we have a junk room of our life, we have certain places, and we just go from crisis to crisis, but for some reason that closet door, that cabinet, that junk room, that area just keeps coming back open and burping out its junk. And we are sometimes so guilty of just going from crisis to crisis. Get it cleaned up, shove it in the closet, shove it in the cabinet, and then a little bit later, all of a sudden, that stuff comes right back out. What is James saying? That a spiritual person, a doer of the word, a liver, a living out, excuse me, living out this life of wisdom, biblical wisdom, in good conversation with fruit of righteousness, has a life that is not full of crisis in relationships, in all of these Areas where there is constant antagonization and difficulty and it just seems like there is constantly tension with anybody and everybody. Now sometimes we take a stand for what is right and we are the lone ranger, so to speak, in the place that we are at and we are faced with persecution we're faced with some sort of criticism, we're mocked, we're ridiculed. There are times where we are in that place where we have to walk alone. I'm not necessarily referring to that, though there are those times. I'm talking about a manner of life James warns us about, that a true doer of the word has a peace to their life. Does it mean that every Suffer, every trial, every tribulation, every point of suffering is removed. But Proverbs talks about that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is kind of what James is referring to here. That our life is not a life of constant crisis of relationships and turmoil because of bad decisions, the poor application or the lack of application of biblical truth, the lack of skill and expertise in applying the principles, the promises, and the commands of God's word into every area of our life. And James is saying that this produces a fruit of righteousness. And he says it's sown in peace of them that make peace. As we conclude, I, again, I refer to 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. I, I wish we could even go through the book of Proverbs and look at some more passages. We read one from Proverbs 3, and I wish we could go back and look at in detail the blessings of the life lived in biblical wisdom. I, I encourage each of us to go back to Proverbs 3 and read verses 13 through 26 and Go to Proverbs, I believe it's chapter number 8, where wisdom crieth out, crieth out in the streets, says openly, publicly, come, learn of me. And in, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, 
The wisdom that comes from God, that is biblical wisdom, is, is referred to as having the power of God. Preaching Christ crucified. Having the wisdom of God, the power of God, that Jesus Christ is unto us righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that our glory is found in the Lord, and that we have the testimony of God. Wouldn't that be, isn't that, I should say, what the testimony of our life should be? That we have the testimony of God. Not that we don't have regrets and failures and past and, and sins that have been covered with the blood of Christ that we have repented of, and not that we've been perfect, but that our life has a testimony of God because there is the fruit of righteousness that has been produced in our life because we have lived out these principles of biblical wisdom by the grace of God who saved us. That as we have heard the word and let it become who we are, we then are now doers of the word with wisdom that comes from above. That is with skill and expertise that comes from the training of God through his word in the right application of biblical principles and truths and lived out in a holiness and a righteousness of life. May we have this fruit of righteousness in our lives that we sow peace and see that peace of God lived out in that righteousness, that fruit of righteousness produced in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It is so convicting. It gets into the, the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, James wasn't looking for likes and follows and subscribers. He wasn't trying to build himself a kingdom on earth. He was advancing your kingdom. And Lord, so often we think that we have to advance your kingdom by our own selfish, worldly, temporal, humanistic means. When God says that in order to advance your kingdom, we depend upon you. We go about living life the way you would have us to live, according to your word. That we, Lord, not just be hearers, but that we be doers of the word. That we live out biblical wisdom with skill, with expertise that comes from you as we love you more and grow in our relationship with you as we mature in our walk, as we apply the truths of your word to our lives. Lord, if there's someone here who is not even able to practice biblical wisdom because, Lord, they are unsaved and they are just living in a constant state of turmoil and a vicious cycle of man's wisdom and worldly wisdom, Lord, may today, may they turn from their sin, reject the wisdom of man, and receive the wisdom of God in the fear of the Lord and turning to you in saving faith. Lord, help us to go out from here and to live for you and to love you more and to serve you better. Help us as a church family in reaching the lost in our relationships with others. And Lord, may we see the fruit of righteousness be lived out in our lives 
sown in peace of them that make peace. May that be true of each and every one of us, we pray in Jesus' name.